0: grace like a flood pouring out of me Your grace a
1: limitless ocean I'm swept away in that time drawn from the well of your goodness drink from the water of mine Your grace a limitless ocean I'm swept away your grace is so big, your mercy is so big, how hard it is for our hearts to comprehend that. Lord, have mercy and grace over our wondering spirits, over our wondering souls, our wondering flesh. The doubt, Lord, the unbelief, maybe even the sin and rebellion that we that we walk in this room with tonight, we give to you and we ask that your mercy and grace would would cover it like a wild, wild river. Your love is strong like the raging sea, that even in the depths, in the chasms, what in the middle of our valleys and our deepest fears, there is strength in your love Just as the sea is raging and can destroy us, Lord, your love is strong like the raging sea. Help us to feel your love, help us to see your love and help us to be changed by your mercy and grace. We love you, Jesus.
2: Sing this out, church. His careful hands they hold us safe within His promise of calling and of destiny. Sing about that faithfulness. We're heaven spun creations, His pride and adoration,
0: the treasures woven by. Careful hands they hold us safe within his promise of calling and of destiny.
2: of year for a lot of reasons. But Father, I know that there's a lot of joy in looking backwards. I know for some of us, there's a lot of fear in that. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of hurt. But I pray that what we would walk away with is a small measure of remembrance that we were not left alone. We were not left to to fare whatever was our lot in 2021 by ourselves. And if anything, what Scripture and what Your faithfulness to me shows me, Jesus, is that you are present. And I pray that what that would do is bolster us. It would steady us. It would give us a courage to know that faithfulness is not just past tense. It's present. It's also future. So as we step towards whatever is ahead of us, this evening, this week, this year, may we do so from a place of knowing that your faithfulness is there. And we have evidence of that. I pray that we would be a body of believers that can hold on to that. And we can hold each other up when maybe we struggle to remember that our God is faithful. But may we do so for the sake of glory that that we know that there is a day coming where that faithfulness will ring true for eternity. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. But till then, I pray that tomorrow, tonight, we would take a step in courage knowing full well that our God is with us and he will never. King Jesus, you're kind. We love you and we thank you for an opportunity to remember that faithfulness. You're good to us. Be with us tonight. Open our ears, open our eyes. Help us to be soft to what you would have for us tonight. We love you and we thank you. We pray all this on your name, amen. Thanks for worshiping up with us, church.
3: Well, good evening, Mosaic. My name's Sam, and I typically work at fellowship on Sunday morning, and so um, if I get a little out of my rhythm tonight, I might say something like, this morning or whatever, just work with me here, but it's great to be with you guys. What a great way to start our new year, amen, and it's great to see some familiar faces. I am blessed to be with you guys tonight. Hey, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We are starting a new series in this Old Testament book of prophecy. Let me orient you to the book of Jonah. It's one of 39 of our Old Testament books. It's one of 17 of the books of prophecy, and it's one of 12 of the books of prophecy that we call the Minor Prophets. Now, being a minor prophet doesn't mean that Jonah delivers a lesser or a insignificant message. It just means that his book of prophecy is shorter than the major prophets. Jonah contains only 48 verses. It's delivered to us in 4 chapters, but it is a power-packed literary masterpiece. We'll cover it in four weeks. And by the way, after that, we'll jump over to another short Old Testament book, the book of Ruth. Now Jonah is a book of prophetic history. So it tells a story to teach a lesson through irony and even humor. I think that you're going to enjoy this book. It's interesting, it's challenging, it's even entertaining. Now when we say it's prophetic history, what we mean is that this is not a fable. This is not a parable. This is not an allegory. Jonah was a real prophet. He's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. The city of Nineveh was a real place and their story is treated as fact by Jesus in the New Testament. The time period for the book is around 750 BC. It takes place in the biblical time period known as the divided monarchy. So for you graduates of the training center class entitled Panorama of the Bible, here's your mark on the biblical timeline. We're in movement seven, kingship divided. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of this evil king named Jeroboam II. And he led the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, away from God. Here are a few key features of the book. This book will show us that God has sovereign power over nature. Even tonight we'll see that, that God has power over storms, over the sea, over plants, over the temperature, and of course, over sea creatures and even worms. It will show us that God has a heart for all people. God has a heart and mercy and compassion for the children of Israel. He has a heart and he has mercy for the Gentiles or the pagans or unbelievers. He even has a heart for wayward prophets. We'll see the prominence of prayer featured in the book. Prayer is featured in all four chapters and check this out. Every single character in the story prays to a God. We'll see Jonah contrasted with these Gentile characters or these pagan characters. Characters. Really, the book is just a great contrast. Jonah, the prophet of God, who is supposed to be pursuing God, is contrasted with these unbelievers. The book can be divided into really two parallel sections. Chapters one and two, it features Jonah's flight from God, and then chapters three and four, Jonah's mission to Nineveh. But look at the structure. The book follows the exact same outline in both sections. In both sections, God's word comes to Jonah the prophet. But in each section, Jonah responds differently. Tonight, we'll see him disobey the Lord. He'll run away. But in the second section, he'll obey the Lord. In both sections, Jonah speaks with these unbelievers. Tonight, he'll speak to pagan sailors. In a couple of weeks, in section two, he'll speak to the Ninevites. In both sections, the unbelievers respond in the exact same way. They actually believe in the Lord and come to faith. In both sections, a disaster is averted. Tonight, we'll see a storm averted. In the second section, we'll see God's judgment averted. Both sections close the same way. Jonah talking to God and God rebuking Jonah. Hey, I do want to recommend a companion resource. Dr. Mark Yarbo, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, has written an incredible book on Jonah. It's It's both um, intriguing and deep, but it's also funny and lighthearted. I think you'll enjoy it. Pick it up at your favorite online retailer. We got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Y'all ready to go? Jonah chapter one. Let's pick it up in verses one and two. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The story starts off by introducing us to the main character of the story. Now think with me. Who is the main character of the book of Jonah? Now before you answer, before you answer, this is a trick question. You see, the main character of the book of Jonah is actually not Jonah. And it's not a big fish. Do you know who the main character of the book of Jonah is? It's the Lord. The Lord is the main character. He's the primary player in the story. The book begins with the Lord. It ends with the Lord. And all throughout, it is the Lord who is consistently the primary focus of the book. In Bible study, we are taught to look for repetition. In the book of Jonah, here are these stats. In our 48 verses, Jonah is mentioned 19 times. The big fish, four times. All other human characters combined, 13 times. The Lord, 40 times. 40 times in 48 verses. The Lord is without question the central focus. The almighty sovereign God is shown speaking and hearing and sending and appointing, and providing, and commanding, and questioning. Now, the book opens as you would expect a book of prophetic history to open. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet. The man of God received a word from God. And as a reader, you expect something significant and noteworthy to follow. Verses 1 and 2 could be considered a commissioning of the prophet, he has given a mission here, a command to go where? To Nineveh and preach. Note that the word used here for God is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's translated into English for us as Lord. Yahweh is the most holy and personal name for God. When used, it is reminding us that this is the one and only God of creation who is exclusively superior to all others. Now, the book of Jonah was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, translated for us into English, and the English translators gave you and I a hint at when that Hebrew word Yahweh is used. It shows it in all caps. Do you see that? Lord in all caps. So every time you see that, know that this is the most holy and special name. For the Lord, Yahweh, it's used 26 times in the book. So the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the prophet. The words of God came to the messenger of God. Jonah's name means dove or peace, which is ironic because we're gonna see tonight that this is a man who is at anything but peace. And he's even reluctant to be an agent of peace. So Jonah is commissioned by the Lord to go and preach in the great city of Nineveh. Tonight's passage is going to have lots of great things a great city, a great wind, a great storm, and of course, a great what? Fish. We're going to find that fish. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which is located in what today is Iraq. And in the time period of the 700s BC, the Assyrians were known as brutal conquerors. They showed their enemies no mercy. Their battle strategy not only called for total destruction, but also humiliation. How do we know this? Well, because they recorded it for us in their history books. They bragged about it. And they weren't really history books. Their history books looked like this. These were on the walls of the king's palaces. These are limestone reliefs or carvings, most of which you can find in the British Museum in London today. And they depicted the Assyrians brutally conquering their enemies. So Jonah is sent to Nineveh in Assyria. Both Jonah and Nahum were prophets against the Assyrians, But Jonah's calling was a little bit different. He wasn't just called to speak against the Assyrians from Israel, he was called to go to Nineveh. This was an out of ordinary and unprecedented calling for a prophet of Israel to be sent into enemy territory, into a a Gentile nation, especially a hostile one. So we have the opening of the book. The, The God of Israel Yahweh, all caps, Lord, bringing his word and his assignment to Jonah, the prophet of Israel. But what happens next is actually very surprising. An unexpected tension is brought into the story. Look at verse three. But Jonah ran away from Yahweh. And he headed for Tarshish, not Nineveh. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the normal expectation for a prophet would be immediate obedience. Normally, in a prophetic narrative, the word of God would come to the prophet. And then the next line in the story, the prophet would immediately obey. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah went and did what the Lord said. The word of the Lord came to Elijah or to Ezekiel and then they would immediately obey. But look at what Jonah did. He didn't obey. In fact, he ran away from the Lord and he went not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish, which most Bible commentators believe is in Spain. He was asked to go 550 miles to the east And he went 2,500 miles to the west. He was asked to travel on land, but he took to the sea. He was called to go to Nineveh, the most well-known city in the Assyrian Empire. And he went to the most unknown destination, as far away as possible, a city most people don't even know anything about, called Tarshish. So why did Jonah flee? Well, we're not given the reason for Jonah's flight in chapter one. We will hear that later from Jonah's own lips later in the story. But there are a couple of reasonable explanations. One would be fear. Jonah feared the Ninevites. How would you like to go preach against people who were known to be brutal conquerors? Or maybe Jonah had a religious or racial or ethnic prejudice. He didn't want the Assyrians to receive the mercy of God. He believed that God's love was for us and not them. Jonah did not want to share God's message with the Ninevites. He feared they might repent. He wanted them to receive God's wrath, not His mercy. So Jonah, he ran away. He wanted to escape God's will, God's purpose, and God's plan for his life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever run away from God? Tried to distance yourself from His word or His will or His people? Maybe that's why you're here tonight. This is the first. Worship service of the year. Maybe you made a New Year's resolution to stop running from God and to come back into his house. We're glad you're here. We're here to help. Back to the story. The Lord had a prophet running from his sovereign will, so he sovereignly intervened to get his attention. Look at verse four. Then the Lord, Yahweh, sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose, the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and they cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Jonah refused to go to the great city, so he ended up in a great storm. And this was a massive storm, so violent that it threatened the integrity of the ship's hull. So intense that even experienced sailors were afraid. So furious that they began to take drastic measures at great expense, throwing their cargo into the sea, which meant they would get no paycheck. You know it's a scary storm when the sailors stop cussing and start praying. And don't forget, this isn't their first storm. They faced them all the times and they began to cry out to their gods. Note the text has their gods in lowercase g. The Hebrew word here is Elohim. It can refer to the creator God, then it's capitalized or pagan gods. And then it's notated by a lowercase g. The author is intentionally comparing and contrasting the pagans' gods and Jonah's God, Yahweh, the almighty God of creation who sent the storm. So everyone is fearing. Everyone is praying except one, Jonah. Everyone was working for the common good except Jonah. Where's Jonah? Well, he's asleep. He lay below deck in lethargic apathy. Maybe he was worn out from carrying his shame and regret from becoming a renegade prophet. You know, a heavy heart can take its toll on you physically. The captain finds him and he wakes him up and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on Elohim, your God. What a role reversal here. The prophet is usually the one pointing others to God, yet He's being called to prayer by a pagan sailor. And how ironic. The very thing that Jonah didn't want to do, talk to pagans about God, is happening anyway. The captain is lecturing Jonah about the potential effectiveness of prayer. And as their desperation escalates, the sailors continue to seek relief from their pending catastrophe. Look at verse 7. It says that the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble on us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country and from what people are you? Now, casting lots was a method of determining God's will by asking God to reveal something through something that would normally be determined randomly. It could have been done a number of ways, like drawing the short straw, or maybe they wrote everybody's name on a stick and put it in a basket and, and drew out, or maybe they cast a die. It, it doesn't matter about the method, but what the point is, is the sovereign hand of God picked the exact one. Jonah, Jonah, was divinely implicated. And and once the responsibility for the storm was assigned to Jonah, the sailors performed a social and spiritual investigation. They wanted to determine who they were dealing with. They peppered him with five rapid fire questions. They wanted to know his occupation, his hometown, his nationality, his ethnicity, and ultimately who was causing this great calamity. Jonah, what did you do to cause this disastrous situation? And if you think about it, their reasoning here is pretty sound theologically. Sin and rebellion result in consequence. Author and preacher Tim Keller said this in his book on Jonah. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. The sailors wanted to find the root cause of their current calamity. So they asked Jonah, who are you and what have you done? Look at verse nine, Jonah answers them and he gets right to the point. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, all caps Yahweh, the most holy name of God. The God of heaven, the God who made the what? The sea." and the dry land, and this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. Jonah made a grand and identifying statement that he is a Hebrew, a chosen child of the Lord, a worshiper of Yahweh, the creator God who made the sea. And look at the reaction of the sailors when Jonah finally connects the dots For them, between the raging sea and his rebellion to the creator of the sea, his statement terrified them. What have you done? If you claim to be a worshiper of the creator of the sea and the sea is in chaotic turmoil, then why did you bring God's anger on us? The spotlight is shining right on Jonah and the responsibility lay at his feet. So with the investigation over, it was time to move to identifying a solution for the problem. Look at verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will be calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. As the winds and the waves continued to intensify, the sailors began to look for a remedy. As each wave began to wash over the deck of the ship, as they encountered dangerous swells, time was running out. And after identifying Jonah as the cause of the calamity, they asked him, what's the solution? The remedy, according to Jonah, would be to offer him as a sacrifice to throw him into the sea to potentially appease the wrath of God. He calls for the removal of the guilty party from the ship. Now, I wonder if this is a point in the story where Jonah has a redemptive moment where he's accepting his guilt, he's making a sacrifice for the good of others. But then the skeptic in me wonders if Jonah's being asked to throw into the, be thrown into the sea to permanently continue his disobedience, to assure that he will never go to Nineveh, that his heart had become so hardened that he'd rather die than preach to the pagan Ninevites in Assyria. Well, the sailors wanted no part and taken the life of a prophet of Yahweh. Look at verse 13. They actually tried to save him. Instead of throwing him into the sea, the men did their best to row back to land. Can you imagine that scene? They're rowing against a storm that's so intense that they feared for their lives, but they could not. The sea grew even wilder than before, and they cried out to the Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. They resisted throwing Jonah into the sea. They they tried to save him by rowing back to land, but the storm intensified for the third time in the story, making it impossible for them. And their efforts are dripping with irony. Jonah, who was running from God in rebellion to his call to save the Gentile Ninevites, has Gentiles trying to save him. And when their rowing efforts failed, the Gentiles again turned to prayer. But note this time who they prayed to. Look at the word. This time they prayed to Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, The God who created the land and the sea, they prayed and asked him to forgive them for what they were about to do. The pagan sailors had prayed to their gods. They had called all the people to prayer. Now they prayed to Jonah's God. But guess who in the story still hasn't prayed? Jonah, the prophet of God. So it was time to hand the prophet of God over to God. Look at verse 15. They tossed Jonah into the sea. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows to him. Jonah was thrown to his death, he was tossed down into a raging sea, expected to sink to the bottom. The sailors had already asked for forgiveness for Jonah's death before they sent him over the side of the boat because they knew when they did, his fate was sealed. And this was confirmed to them when the seas grew calm. It was assumed that Jonah's life was the payment to appease God's raging wrath. Note the downward cycle in the story. As he ran from the will of God, Jonah went down to Joppa. That's where he got on the ship. He went down into the belly of the ship and took a nap and now he's going down into the sea. Dr. Mark Yarbrough in his book noted this downward cycle. He said the observant reader of the text soon notices that running from the Lord leads to a downward cycle. Disobedience leads to descent. And I want you to notice the effect that Jonah's descent had on those above. When Jonah went into the sea, the sea became calm. The storm storm dissipated just as quickly as it arose. Suddenly, the raging sea became still. Jonah, like a prophetic Pepto-Bismol tablet, was thrown into the sea, and it became smooth. And there came a calm over the upset waters. And look at the effect that the miracle had on the pagan sailors, after witnessing the power of the Lord over nature, the sovereign hand of the Lord Yahweh, they worshiped him. The scriptures say at this, meaning after they witnessed the miraculous power of the Lord, the men greatly feared the Lord. They worshiped him. They offered vows to him. The divine intervention led the pagan sailors to genuine faith and trust in the true God. This story is contrasting the spirituality of these two characters. Look at the contrast. The sailors cried out to God. Jonah ran away from God. The sailors tried to to save everyone by throwing the cargo into the sea. Jonah took a nap. The sailors tried to save Jonah even while Jonah was resisting saving the Ninevites. The sailors worshiped God. Jonah only professed to worship God. And in a time of biblical history, when the northern kingdom of Israel had turned away from the Lord and Jonah was running away from the Lord, God showed Jonah and Israel and you what true faith looks like. Again, ironic. Jonah ran away from the Lord because he didn't want pagan Ninevites to come to faith, and here he was a part of pagan sailors coming to faith. Jonah is learning that the sovereignty of God is something that can't be stopped. Back to the story. While throwing the prophet into the ocean saved the ship, it very much put Jonah into extreme danger. He became a man overboard in dangerous waters, sinking to the bottom of the ocean. There's no hope for Jonah at this point. And while the seas above grew calm, the storm raged on for the prophet as he sank to his death, the end. No, there's one more verse. Then the mercy of God showed up in a sea creature. Look at verse 17. God showed up in a powerfully providential yet peculiar fashion. This is the most well-known verse in the entire book. Now the Lord provided a huge what? fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The Lord provided a sovereign rescue for Jonah. Verse 17 is a reversal of the expected course. Most translations say that the Lord appointed a great fish. A great God commanded a great fish to rescue a wayward prophet. He's a merciful God. He is a gracious God. He is a God who saves. He was saving the sailors above. Now he's saving the prophet below. Now most of us know this story as the story of Jonah and the what? But does the Bible say that? You heretics! It simply says Jonah was rescued by a great fish, a huge fish. Now, it very likely could have been a whale, very likely was a whale. But the point here is not what rescued Jonah, but that he was rescued by the sovereign and merciful hand of God who sent a large sea creature to save him from drowning. Now let's point out the elephant in the room. Many people struggle believing the Bible because of this story. They find this Miracle too big to comprehend. Many people struggle with this story being real because of this miraculous event. Tim Keller said this about Jonah and the great fish. He says, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, then there is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally as a true story. According to Keller, there are miracles that are much greater in force than Jonah and the fish. Did you know that Jesus treated this story as fact? In Matthew chapter 12, he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah And now something greater than Jonah is here. Well, well, here's the deal. If Keller and Jesus aren't convincing enough for you and you're still a skeptic, how about a news story from this summer? There was a lobster fisherman in Cape Cod named Michael Packard who actually was eaten by a whale and survived it. Don't believe me? Check this out. One of the greatest miracles in all the Bible is actually pointing us to the greatness of God. So don't miss the point. Don't miss the sovereign, almighty, powerful hand of God moving to enact his purpose and will on this earth. Don't miss his compassion and mercy and love being delivered through his power and might. Don't miss the main character in the story. It was the word of the Lord that came to Jonah it was the Lord who sent the great wind. It was the Lord who identified Jonah through the casting of lots. It was the Lord who calmed the sea. And it was the Lord who appointed the great fish. The winds obey him. The waves obey him. The fish obey him. The only one who didn't obey him was Jonah. And the Lord was not done with him either. He sovereignly guided his life as well. And his mission to bring good news to unbelievers in Nineveh could not be stopped. So please note and don't forget this idea from the story. You can't run away from the sovereignty of God. You can't escape God's plans and purposes. His providence rules without limitation. You can't evade his love. You can't elude his will. You can't outsmart, outwit, overpower or overthrow him. He is the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And I've got good news. He's slow to anger, rich in mercy and abounding in love. And the best news of all, you can't outrun his grace. Despite your best efforts to remove yourself from his love and to turn away from his truth, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful, unmoved by your disobedience, determined to keep you in his favor. So what a privilege, what an honor it is to serve a God who is almighty beyond comprehension and whose love is incomprehensible. May we run to him and never away, amen? Would you pray with me? Well, Father God, I pray that we would find ourselves right in the middle of your sovereign will. And whatever that is for us, we would find contentment there. Lord, forgive us for running away. us, forgive us for trying to take control. Forgive us for playing God. I pray over 2022 that we would be in line with your purpose and plan, that we would be with your word and your people this year. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we affirm God's truth?
1: stronger than the raging sea and whose wrath and whose discipline and punishment sometimes would even use the raging sea around us to bring us into your mercy and grace. We cannot thwart you, we cannot get in your way. We are not more sovereign than you. Far be it from us to live our lives like we are. Help us surrender and submit to you, King Jesus. Oh, how we love you, amen. Mosaic family, well, thanks for worshiping with us tonight. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. Please find someone from our prayer team up here on either side at the front. Um, If you're new and you're looking to be connected, find someone from the community team. We'll be out there in the info booth in the foyer. Um, And please hang and chat and talk to our neighbors and family and friends around us before we leave. Have a good week, have a good evening. We'll see you next week.